HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. You're listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Kicking off our third season with me is author and professor Thomas Parker. His most recent book, Tasting French Terroir, The History of an Idea, explores the origins and significance of the French concept of terroir. We'll also be discussing his event series and blog, Subnature and Culinary Culture, which examine the history of foods that have been marginalized and reappropriated by different cultures throughout history. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. <laughs> So we've all heard and or used and maybe even light up when we hear the word terroir when talking about food and wine. And so what does it really mean and how has its use changed over time? Great, great question. I mean, first I should just, by way of introduction, I should say that for, for me, terroir is sort of a lived experience before I became professor of uh, French uh, literature and philosophy um, and language. I, um, I was a wine importer in France, and this was back in the 90s, and uh, people were talking about terroir, and you know, I was really interested, and I didn't know the concept very well, and frankly, a lot of people didn't back then. Even the, the growers, the producers of wines, uh, bandied about a lot less often than they do now. Um, and so I sort of pursued the interest uh, as far as wine is concerned, and then uh, when I went back and I got my graduate degree, um, you know, the interest never went away. And um, um, I started digging into this idea of terroir and, you know, where does it come from and, and why why do we say the word terroir and, and, and why do we borrow the French word instead of having um, our own word for, uh, for the, you know, the, the fact that the soils or the uh, physiographic, uh, you know, specifics of, a, of, of where a product is grown can have on its flavor. And I, I realized that the, that the word went back hundreds of years and, um, and uh, you know, French culture, and that it had, it had changed over time. And, and it's now the sort of the sainted idea, we think of it as something as a, a, a testament to authenticity in a product and, you know, um, a really good, a good, a good part of or something we look for when we, when we try a food or a wine, the stamp of the place it's grown in. Um, but back in the back in the 17th century, um, it was pejorative. It was it was as if it were the, the, the fact that the terroir were 
we're somehow keeping the the real intrinsic essence of the product from coming out. So um, that was one that was one of the first interesting things I learned about it. It wasn't always a good thing, and even now, um, terroir. If you talk to people, old timers, I guess, uh, even in the twentieth century, it was sometimes a negative, um, a ne- negatively. So. And so, um, how? How has that changed today? Why is that? Why do we look for? It? And I thought that was really interesting what you mentioned about how it's still, you know, we keep it in the French and we don't have our own term in English. Well, yeah, um, great question. And, uh, you know, there's that basically I can give you um, uh, uh, an oral answer that uh, that's the equivalent of 251 pages of my book. So I'm going to try to cut it a little short. But just uh, understanding why it's positive now has a little bit to do with understanding why it was negative at one point. Um, and this is the 17th century. It's sort of the height of the French uh, world influence when uh, Louis XIV was king, and uh, the, his court and Versailles were, you know, the place to be. You know, if you were anyone at all or wanted to pretend to be anyone, you had to. Um, uh, you know, you had to um, sort of show up at Versailles and you know, have a cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan air and um, um, be refined. And at that time, terroir was used to describe people who came from outside of Versailles and, you know, maybe from the provinces who, um, you know, didn't speak as well. Maybe they had an accent, a regional accent, or their comportment was, a, you know, a little um, uh, provincial, uh, not urbane. And all of a sudden, you know, this, this concept, which really, um, in aesthetic terms, was first applied to language and human comportment, way before we're talking about, you know, um, before it became popularized as a food term, was also um, uh, transferred into the realm of food. And so um, people who wanted to show that they, you know, were pure-blooded of, you know, of great lineage and, um, you know, belonged in the, in the court... Um, would start, um, uh, uh, they, they produce sort of a snobbery about the food that they ate, and they would look for foods without terroir, the pure, the purest mm-hmm. foods, whether it be uh, river reveal, white river veal from Normandy, or um, champagne, which even though it wasn't effervescent at the time, was thought of as the most pure wine. And there are these great, you know, I found some great quotes about how um, the, the, you know, the, the taste of, of terroir was, you know, this, this flaw. And the, the people who weren't, uh, you know, finely bred themselves would, you know, somehow not notice that the, these faults and be fine with drinking these um, or drinking these wines or eating these foods that were you know, negatively marked by the terroir. Um, and so it was, um, you know, for the longest time, you know, people tried to have things that were completely neutral so that the essence would show up. Uh, you know, fast forward 100 years up towards the revolution, um, there's a counter movement that uh, begins with um, um, oh, around 1750 or 1760, and notably with some uh, prominent writers uh, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who start to uh, put value on, on the provinces and on the countryside. And you know, he talks specifically uh, about, about food, um, uh, and um, he talks about how, you know, uh, in Paris, they, everything is neutralized, and you know the, the countryside has been stripped of its um, of its qualities, and you know uh, the uh, people just try to drain swamps and cut down forests, and you know make the these perfect terroirs. But he he bemoans the fact that you know uh, France has lost a lot of its uniqueness and individuality, and and you know right at this time leading up to the revolution, then 
into the 19th century, regionalism becomes really much more popular. And uh, all of a sudden, terroir starts popping up in positive context that, you know, there are natural effects of, uh, of the terroir that, um, uh, that, that are positive and that you should seek out. And it becomes normalized so that if you're drinking a, a Mosul wine from Germany uh, and you have a, you know, a flintiness in it, that that's a normal, that's something you should expect to find in it. And um, so it's, I guess it's part, of a, it, it's part of a political and social and regional movement where people start sort of identifying with their products. And at, you know, from there on in, it be, there on out, it becomes more and more positive. Um, and um, and uh, it really, when I first started going to France in the, in the 90s, it always, it always surprised me that if you went to different regions like Burgundy or Champagne, you know, people in, in Burgundy, they didn't drink wine from Champagne. They drink wine. They drank wine from um, uh, from Burgundy, and same thing with people in Champagne, as if you know this was something that was proper for them. You know, so again, it was part of their identity, and they sort of consumed their culture and consumed and reified and uh, and recreated their identity on a sort of daily basis by drinking wines that were uh, you know, from the region. Um, and, and I think now um, you know there's more there's more to it. it, it for people who are trying to come to grips with uh, with how to appreciate wine, um, if you have benchmarks, if you have certain expectations from a terroir, it can help you make sense of you know what the flavors are, what you're smelling, and it gives you gives you roots. It gives you a, you know a basis for which to understand what you're consuming. It's a mnemonic technique as well, so you can remember what you consume. And you know, there's also something nostalgic about it. If you've traveled to France or Germany or you know, I know California, and you have wines, you, you you're back wherever you live, and you have wines from those regions, and you know, you you smell the terroir and the wine. You know, maybe it's cheeses. Then all of a sudden, you're revisiting you know this this area that you saw and sort of um, you know re- reliving it in a way, in a different sense. So that was a long answer, but <laughs> there's a, no, that's a few. great. <laughs> Um, I was just talking to this uh, friend who did this internship at the Nordic Food Lab, and she was talking about how she made nuka, the Japanese rice bran pickle, in uh, Copenhagen, but using you know the local wheat there. And it was like a way of not appropriating Japanese techniques, but just kind of respectfully reinventing them um, or even reimagining them for her current uh, climate or environment. And I feel like, you know, that... He's gotten a lot of criticism for like the Tulum pop up, and I think it's really interesting to compare the Burgundy people drinking only Burgundy wine, the Champagne people only drinking Champagne wine, with something like this, which is so inherently cross cultural. And do you think um, we're moving in that direction? Yeah, you know, and and I think you know I make a case in the book for this terroir terroir as being this French concept that's existed for hundreds of years, um, but you know other cultures have had the concept as well. It just took off better in France. And I think, you know, basically because France was such an agricultural country and, you know, it was easy to have a metaphor um, or a term that, you know, exp- when you do, when agriculture is a big part of your life or your country's identity, then maybe it, you know, took off more easily as far as France is concerned. But, um, you know, I, I really think that um, everywhere you go, I mean, there's people have this notion of, of terroir. Maybe they didn't really express it as such, but um, and, and it's funny, they, they not only believe that their foods are somehow influenced by the regions they come from, and they want to support them um, 
uh, and I'll give you an example of that in just a second, but also they believe in climatic um, determinism, meaning that um, that somehow the climate where you live and you know your physical surroundings shape who you are as a person and your and your tastes. Um, and to just to, to cut it to an example of uh, of of the food part of it, um, you know, back when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life, I you know um, uh, become just gotten into the importing. I was working in a wine store in upstate New York, and um, it always baffled me because I was really into wines. And at the time, now New York State now produces some really great uh, wines uh, upstate, but there were a few back then, but most of it was just terrible. And yet, when I looked at our sales, um, our regional sales, people, I mean, it, it, regional wines uh, interest and you know just the, the amount of money people spent far surpassed that French wines or anything like that. So, you know, I thought it was very interesting. You know, people are somehow connected in some way, even if they don't talk about it in terms of terroir with the products are from around them, and they somehow, you know, there's this maybe almost a spiritual sort of, you know, thing going on, a cerebral, aesthetic mix that when they eat something that they don't have to have grown it in their own garden, but if it comes to the region, it makes it special. Um, and um, and as far as um, as far as the influence of terroir on people, um, uh, you know, I, I, I believe, you know, as we... I think people still think that you know somehow we're we are a product of the place we live in, the physical climate, and um, so I think it I think it's true with cultures I know here in France and in the United States, and you know I've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence and you know uh, stories from people who you know, have the same same sorts of stories basically. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I totally relate to that. Um, you know, people do like, oh, let's have like a sushi party, and like, okay, you have to bring sake. And but I think like while that's really uh, heartwarming and kind of you know reifying, like you said, their, their cultural identity, et cetera, et cetera, it's also I feel like kind of limiting. What if the um, wine producers in Burgundy wanted to make something like a champagne? How would uh, would that even be possible, or would it? be self-limiting in that way um yeah well you know um you know i don't think it, it wouldn't be possible it would be it would be a different beverage it would be it would be different it would definitely there's mm. you know there's definitely some truth to terroir i mean there are there are lots of it that there's a lot of aspects of it if you if you're in the wine or food business and you realize people are like oh that's the terroir and um you know there are all sorts of explanations that can come from other something else other than the terroir other you know the the way uh, wine or food was treated or produced or aged um or even i just saw a book um uh and and paris on uh pesticides and on the flavors a whole book written on the pesticides on pesticides and the flavors they leave in wine so you know next time somebody i, I haven't read the book yet but I, I'm, I'm definitely going to because uh, you know you you something that you thought was a part of the terroir could actually just be a flavor from the pesticide at least this is the thesis of this book and, and it makes sense so um, but going back to um, this creation of, of, of uh, terroir in France, um, it's funny that you should bring up the example of making champagne in Burgundy because um, a lot of the construction of terroir um, owes something to an American influence. Hmm. Um, and that American influence was um, a mite uh, called phylloxera uh, that uh, attacked, it was brought over um, unknowingly on some vine cuttings from that people thought, well, we'll try some American vines out in France in the in the mid nineteenth century, and um, you know there were these these aphids basically uh, hidden in their roots, and um, so when they got planted in the um, 
in France, and this happened in the southern Rhone first, um, uh, these aphids sort of migrated over and started eating the roots of other vines. Um, and really, the vines started dying off, and it became a huge percentage of, of French vines were killed in the latter half of the 19th century. I mean, um, it was really a scorch. It was just uh, the, the, the whole wine industry throughout France and then throughout Europe was um, pretty much destroyed by this American aphid. It took a long time to identify what it was um, because the aphid, after it killed the vine, just sort of moved on, went along its merry way to another vine. So when people dug up the dead vine, there was no evidence on the roots. Finally, they figured out what this, it was this aphid. And, um, and then there was a problem, well, how are we going to fix the problem? Uh, that was, the question was, how are we going to fix this problem? And um, um, they, uh, they finally, this, they tried all these different weird techniques. And finally, people said, well, you know, why don't we, you know, the American vines survive with this. You know, why is that? Why don't we just start grafting roots of American vines on, uh, you know, uh, on, French, on, on French varietals? And as it turns out, American vines had, are, are thicker in their roots, and so they had grown to you know, withstand these aphids. And so even today, um, most of, uh, you know, like 98% of, um, of all wines that you drink in, French, in France and Europe are, are grafted onto American rootstock to protect against the aphid, which still, still exists. So that was a huge shock to French identity because all of a sudden you can imagine, you know, like people who are you know, taking pride in their wines are, you know, not only had their, their vines been wiped out by this American pest, but now, you know, the roots of their vines, the identity of their vines are being grafted onto American roots. And so one of the ways that terroir took off was the scientists said, well, you know, the vines are just carrying the nutrients from the soil. You know, the French terroir is inimitable. You know, that's where the flavors come from. And so it was like, a, you know, rhetorically a very positive way of thinking about um, these, this American rootstock. Um, and terroir became all the more popular. And that was coupled with the fact that um, at the same time that there was this, you know, this scourge, that there was a, people were bringing in from wine re regions all different sorts of wine, like Champagne couldn't produce the wine that they needed to put out their Champagne. So, you know, there were, there's wine coming in from North Africa and all over the place and being marketed. Um, as uh, as wines, falsely as wines from the Appalachian that you know it was bottled in, and um, after the solution was found in the beginning of the 20th century, and people started to reclaim their you know their regional identities, there's all this fraud going on. So that's when ter terroir and all these rules about the Appalachians became you know were enforced, and that's when the AOC sort of came into existence, uh, l'Appellation d'origine contrôlée. Um, so anyway. This may be more than you want to hear again, but uh, but it's interesting that there are all these. We think of it as just this terroir is just something that exists and um, this you know, static concept, but it's really always evolving. And there are all these, you know, natural influences and historical influences. And people are involved, and and all these things are changing the flavors of of, of wines and foods. Mm -hmm, exactly, like what you mentioned before, how it um, originated at this pejorative term, and then now we're seeing it as you know kind of desired. Um, this kind of reminded me of an episode I did a few weeks ago with this baker in San Francisco who um, I was looking into the history of bread and first whole grain breads were kind of looked down upon and like the rich people would only eat white bread which is super pure but also had no nutrition and so now we have this new return to whole grain and we're like milling our own flour and it's very much about connecting to our earth and so um, how does eating signify who we are or how does it become a reflection or creation of our identity 
Well, it's a, it's a great question, and it's a, it's something that goes back to um, uh, if you take the example they used as, uh, of of bread, it goes back to antiquity. It goes back to ancient Greece, where uh, you know milled grains and flour, um, uh, you know, bread was considered to be um, a superior food over over barley, um, and part of it was the the fact that it it you know, it rose and it became this structural, you know, this architectural almost <laughs> um, food where it wasn't like a mash, you know what I mean? It wasn't like porridge. It was, um, it, you know, it had a form and a structure. But beyond that, um, uh, making bread uh, signified agriculture, you know, and a society um, and um, stable resources and, uh, you know, milling bread is ext is extremely difficult. So you need to have the means to do that, you know, to um, to end up with finished product. So, you know, about it's it's a, it's about a, a statement on the capital that you have, you know, the ability to have this labor intensive food and to be able to eat it. Um, and um, and then, you know, as you as you've noticed, as you remark, you know, bread's just one of these things that's gone back and forth between, you know, um, do we want the whitest, lightest bread or do we want something that, you know, is whole grain? Um, so it's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Can you, you mentioned this before, um, can you talk about how um, our relationship to eating animals has also changed and how also is continually evolving? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying, I'm trying to think the, so the context of specific, um, of specific animals, I'm trying to think of the, uh, of, uh, um, the exact, what we were talking about specifically. I know if we, um, going back to, um, going back again to, to the Greeks and maybe that's not what you're looking for, but a fish for the longest time, uh, up until the fourth century BC, uh, were something that was completely, you know, distrusted by the Greeks. They thought that the, the fish, since they came from a medium that was so foreign to the media that human beings lived in, that um, that they were something to, you know, sort of be avoided. And and, and you know, there was also this lore of um, that fish could be man eaters, and that you know, you could be eating something that had eaten a, a human being. Um, and so, for the longest time, uh, you know. Eating fish was really not, it was something that was looked down upon. And then all of a sudden, in the fourth century, um, it became something that was uh, uh, something that was in vogue. And, you know, it took, a, it took means to have fish. Again, it's something that it, people could show their, um, um, show their, their power um, by actually, you know, even if they didn't live on the sea, being able to obtain fish um, and, and eat it. And it, um, um, uh, it became um, it became so it became very popular and 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 I think I've always thought you know you think of rich uh, of, of fish ponds like the Roman fish ponds the carp ponds I think being able to master something that came from an alien environment and you know actually raise it and cultivate it became a sign of a domination over over nature something that had started out was that was looked upon with superstition and frowned upon all of a sudden became um, first because it was you know your this encounter with unknown where you prevail and you and you have the means to have it and eat it um, became a luxury item and then you know a sign of domination um, and our domination over the natural world um, yeah so that would be that would be one example uh, yeah no that was that was great you actually I hadn't heard that one before so that was really interesting but um 
what I was thinking to, to just reinforce your point is our relationship with pigs and how um, they're like, ah, they're so wild and dirty. But then it was like this domestication of them and we like the subject object relationship that we kind of imposed on this and now where it's very common to eat pig. And so it, there seems to be this trend of being at first um, alienated by these foods and then kind of eating them just to say we overcame them and then they become you know something very common and so why is this also problematic I mean I'm thinking of you know a lot of Asian foods um, people kind of I have a lot of friends that will say like oh let's go out and eat something like very exotic and it turns into the spectacle instead of truly enjoying the food and it's hard to find the middle ground and yeah I'll just yeah. if you could speak on that yeah no absolutely I think that's it's often a question of domination and I mean it's something you see on um, on television all the time on the you know the food shows where you know um, uh, somebody will go to a strange foreign country, a chef will go to a strange foreign country and uh, get on with the natives and, you know, like that'll be a weird experience and um, and they'll have to be courageous and eat this food that these people consider to be normal food and, you know, and and all the the person, the, the, the chef um, in question ends up, you know, sort of eating the food and giving some sort of commentary on it and surviving and overcoming the experience, but in fact it it just creates this um, this this idea of foreignness. It doesn't the food isn't normalized. It's it's just the opposite happens. Um, pigs are an interesting example because um, you know we know that through history uh, and at least in, in Western culture, um, the pig is you know we've had an ambivalent relationship with pigs. Um, they've um, you know in, in the Old Testament we say that they're you know um, it's a it's a, a an animal has a cloven foot, but um, but chews its cud. So, uh, but sorry, but does not chew its cud. So it's kind of it's kind of like a it's not like a, a sheep or cow. It's it's somehow different. And then um, you know there are theories about well, it's very close to human beings. You know, it's an omnivore like humans are, and uh, we keep it close to us. It eats you know a lot of the same things that we eat. Um, they're intelligent. Um, so. Maybe they just they've gotten too close to um, to to human beings, and um, eating anything that's too close, um, like a dog or a cat, in a lot of cultures is you know, um, you know, most cultures is considered to be almost cannibalistic, and so um, maybe the pig got too close to us, um, and then there's this idea, well, it's also um, you know, uh, it, you know, it eat feces or they're cannibalistic or, you know, um, so maybe they're too far from us and that's what, that's what makes them, um, unpalatable to us. Um, and so there are all these theories and, and, and then there's the, the trichinosis idea, which is, um, doesn't make sense historically speaking because trichinosis takes effect, um, uh, like days and days after you, um, you um, you eat the you would have eaten the infected animal and um, uh, it's just apparently it doesn't stand up um, if you to analysis if you look at that being the reason why you know pigs have been marginalized but um, I, I think that what's interesting is one way that they've been marginalized and it's a really interesting way because it's a part of the construction of the United States is is the company they've kept um, and so when the colonists came to um, to America. Um, they brought with them cattle and pigs, and um, you know neither of which were indigenous. 
Um, and uh, the colonists tried to um, sort of domesticate um, First Nations people by, um, by giving them livestock, because livestock tied you to a place, and it meant that you could, um, that you, you could, uh, so you would know where these, it, it domesticated people. And so, you know, so whereas a lot of the tribes were nomadic and they hunted, you know, the idea is, well, we'll give them livestock and then they'll sort of turn into a culture like our own and, you know, we'll, we'll know where they are and they'll, you know, they'll stay put, um, which we'll be more comfortable with. But as it turns out, um, the only ones that um, the only animal that a lot of First Nations people liked or accepted easily was um, was the pig because they could turn it loose and let it forage for itself um, and let it go free and then continue their normal activities. Um, and then um, they would be able to um, at, at the end of the season in the fall, they would be able to sort of tame it, bring it back in again. And, and kill it and, and have the meat. So it actually it just perpetuated and encouraged the sort of nomadic lifestyle and the hunting um, culture that um, that uh, that settlers found to be um, um, problematic or threatening. So you know, so there's there are all these different reasons that that sort of um, create what would be you know a, a marginalized food um, and. And then all of a sudden um, you have a moment when uh, a people or a culture will decide that, um, you know, this food, they'll recognize it as part of their history. Um, and this has happened in the South with, with pigs where people um, think of being Southern as, as, as pigs being a part of the Southern culture. And so they'll, uh, they'll try to appropriate or reappropriate what they Think to be a part of their their past history of the ha past history of the South in order to create an identity for themselves, and all of a sudden, eating pork becomes very popular. And and notably, not only pork, not only eating high on the hog, but most recently, you know, eating um, offal and you know innards and things that you know not the not the tenderloin, but things that m mostly would have been cast off as uh, as waste before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's so crazy to me. Um, my mom used to make oxtail soup because it was just, you know, like a cheaper cut and it's like really makes a really gelatinous broth. And then I wanted to make it and I went to a butcher shop around here and it's so expensive. And so how does that happen? How do these kind of less choice cuts become suddenly elevated because of this kind of exoticness? Um, yeah, no, I mean, there's this fetishization of, of you know, a, a culture or people, what people can believed to be a heritage, um, and, um, or, um, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, the same thing happened. I spent some time, uh, in uh, Durham, North Carolina and, um, you know, there are all these, you know, the, the food culture down there is fantastic. Um, and, um, I, I remember going to a butcher shop and, uh, wanting to get, uh, pork cheek, um, because there was some recipe that I was interested in. I was really, you know, into food and doing, I think I was also becoming, you know, sucked up in this sort of, I'm in the South, I've got to eat pork, you know, and uh, <laughs> be a part of this myself and, you know, and understand what these people are, are talking about. But um, just recently, pork cheek, which is something butcher shops never used to carry, has become 
really, really expensive because, you know, all these, you know, people who are banding about these concepts of, or these, have these ideas of, you know, um, making these recipes and becoming, um, you know, authenticating their experience of a, of a region or a culture by, um, by having, um, you know, these unusual parts of an animal that aren't usually, you know, haven't been in the past, um, um, uh, consumed as often, all of a sudden, you know, the prices go up and then people who, Used to you know, rely on these on these uh, on these parts of the animal who you know, maybe don't have the means and you know there's a lot of poverty in, in North Carolina uh, like everywhere. Um, all of a sudden, find that they you know they can no longer um, they can no longer uh, afford the the same cuts of meat that they they could in the past. Um, and 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 it's really it's a, this crazy phenomenon. Uh, there's a great writer, um, an anthropologist named Brad, Brad Weiss, who's written about sni- uh, 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 snout to tail eating and, and that part of, uh, of America and how, you know, people are just, um, they have this idea that when you go to, a, so when you go to a, um, a pig roast, um, they want to sort of commune with a with the animal and with the life of the animal because they think of it as a happy heritage pig because they only have heritage pigs at these pig roasts where these enthusiasts come. And in order to do that, they'll like gravitate towards the parts of the animal that are most identifiable as animal parts. So not indescript cuts of meat, but you know, body organs because they want to think of if, if they're somehow eating this food that they're like sort of appropriating the happy you know, life of the of the the pig that they have. You know, this image of it. You know, living in on this farm and high grasses. You know, free range and all that. And that they that they're sort of becoming a part of that. Um, and you know, apparently these 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 big pros that all the traditionally more expensive cuts are just left by the side, and people go for you know for the obscure pieces. It's really it's really crazy, but um, but it's really interesting too. And it's a, it's a part of the subject object. You know, becoming one where. You know, here you're not trying to dominate as much the the, the object. Uh, if, you know, if it's a, you were talking about earlier, you know, how eating you know foreign foods that are threatening. You know, there's a bit of domination of you coming in. You, you're being threatened by this this object, and if you can actually eat it and you know and survive it, then you've survived this you know scary experience. And here it's not so much of just this dichotomy. It's almost as if people were you know. Um, creating it's it's almost as if they were imbibing values that they want to confer upon themselves and um and so it's it's really it's really crazy but it's really interesting too so mm-hmm. this is meant to be eaten i'm speaking with author thomas parker about the history of the idea of terroir we'll be right back after a short break Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. So let's kind of shift gears here. Um, can you talk about, uh, well, actually, let's first just define the subnature. Where does that term come from and what does it mean to you and your work? Huh. Yeah, I, I love talking about this. Um, I, I love talking about terroir um, 
uh, but Subnature is my newest project, um, and um, it's something I'm still uh, I'm still sort of grappling with. It's a it's an architectural neologism uh, coined by this uh, historian, architectural historian and theorist named David Gisson, and he wrote a book. Uh, um, uh, in 2009 called Subnature, Nature's Other Environments. And it's all about architecture. And, um, you know, I was reading this book and uh, Gisson was talking about, well, you know, in architectural terms, um, there are qualities that we want if we're, um, if we're, you know, talking a place about a place where we're going to live. Um, and those qualities are like space and flow and light, greenness, centrality, um, panorama, you know, views, maybe sea views. Um, and then going back to you know, the Romans and to uh, like architects, like uh, theorists like Vitruvius, there were these qualities that had always been othered. Uh, things that places that you know when you're thinking about where you want to live, like qualities that come from nature, they're natural qualities. Uh, no one disputes that, but they're natural qualities that you don't want to sort of be a, be share or be a part of or have you know in your living environment and those include like dankness or darkness uh you know anything that's wet outskirts pigeons smoke weeds dirt um stagnancy and you know i was really i thought yeah this is really um really you know an interesting concept and you know doesn't the same thing sort of exist in terms of food i'd seen that a little in terroir of course because terroir was one of these you know subnatures at some point and i thought well you know what are the other sort of subnatures and food and i thought well you know people are getting into fermented foods now but you know for the longest time it wasn't something that people wanted to eat and you know awful we just talked about you know eating you know tripe and you know intestines or whatever um um people wouldn't wouldn't consider eating you know awful maybe stinky cheeses would be another one really fragrant cheeses um insects um you know the the list goes on and on and, and it includes <laughs> there's an overlap between um uh architecture and um and uh cuisine because um uh pigeons are, are sort of something that we used to consume uh, often, and they were known as, you know, we call them pigeons, um, up until, until pigeons started invading, you know, cityscapes and they became sort of this, you know, invasive species. Um, and so that they become a, uh, they became a sub nature, both in architectural and culinary terms. Um, weeds, you know, we were talking about, uh, Noma before, Rennie Redzepi, you know, makes, he's, he takes, you know, plants that most people consider to be, you know, just weeds and makes these incredible dishes out of them. But, you know, a lot of things are weeds are a subnature for a lot of people. Um, uh, smoked foods. Uh, smoke used to be um, a sign of technology and civilization um, um, and antiquity because it's a way of preser preserving foods. But now we think of we think of smoke in the cityscape as pollution after the 19th century and 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 smoked foods. You know, sometimes we eat them, you know, to. Um, you know, uh, a, a small extent, but, you know, we know that there are carcinogens. Um, and, um, you know, there are all these, so there are all these foods that are, that I want to investigate why they were subnatures and, uh, and how and why people stayed away from them and what were the cases where they were being reappropriated and, um, and why. And uh, so that's, that's the new project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there are all these instances of quote unquote subnatural foods, but how and why will they be elevated to not just something weird or something exotic to something that people actually want to eat? Like, um, I think Van Leeuwen's, is that who it is? They 
do this thing where they put insects on their ice cream. They're like, ooh, you know, more sustainable protein. But it becomes a thing where it's like, you know, I overcame this. I ate the insect, and I'm probably never going to eat it ever again. And so um, maybe pigeons are more successful example. How do you think we can, I don't know, make the um, leap? Yeah, it's really, um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's weird the, the reason it happens. You know, insects, um, um, it's a really fascinating example because, um, um, you know, a lot of the world um, eats insects and, you know, that's a you know, much more sustainable source of protein than, um, than, you know, uh, beef or, or pork or chicken. Um, and even though we know that, uh, you know, even when this is proven to us, we still, even when we know it's good and we know rationally speaking that, um, that it's not harmful, that, you know, we know that people can survive on, on these things. We have, we have these sort of, you know, emotional reactions that are, um, hard to, to, to overcome. And so, you know, cases, cases like that, you know, it never so far, I mean, I know people are making inroads and, you know, slowly, um, you know, insects are being accepted in you know, a more broad context, but usually, as you say, they're mixed with ice cream or they're put in, you know, um, you know, snack bars or something like that, um, hidden as much as possible, ground into flour and then sweetened. Um, you know, people still really have a hard time with, having, you know, insects legs, you know, get caught in their teeth or something like that, you know, it's really, and yet that's what fascinates me because it's, it's something that if we only ate, if we liked and what, and what it, what was good, ethically speaking, tasted good to us, um, you know, why, why can't we, why can't we, we get there and, and you know, make the world a better place and a more sustainable place. Now, interestingly, um, a lot of times subnatures are, um, you know, there's a sort of a lexical alteration and, and um, something that has been marginalized, a food that's been marginalized. So, you know, we don't eat pigeons, but we we, we don't um, we don't mind squab. You know, mm. if somebody says squab, then we're like, oh, you know, um, <laughs> great. Mm, that sounds wonderful. But, you know, a squab is just a baby pigeon that's, you know, actually never flown. Um, so they're, you know, they're killed off before they've ever flown. So it's really... Um, you know, ethically speaking, it's it's not great. Um, and to give you another example, I think it's the uh, the Patagonian toothfish, which you know, I mean, you know, who wants to order that on the menu? But when you say Chilean sea bass, which mm-hmm. is how the name it was marketed as, um, people are like, oh yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, something that was a subnatural food just because it sounded yucky um, is you know uh, being uh, you know uh, fished to the point of extinction in the mm-hmm. ocean. So it's. It's 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 really strange it's strange how how it works and you know that's that's one of the things that that interests me and then going back to the awful example you know having people so that's a that's an example where people are sort of you know people are buying this pork cheek and you know pork snout and you know pork ears and I mean, trotters and things like that you know at least people who are more enlightened about food um, or consider themselves will be more enlightened so that's one where you know um, we're sort of getting past. Um, um, know something that was a taboo food or considered unpalatable so all the reasons for this food is such a powerful way of identifying ourselves and creating an identity for ourselves and then also creating an identity for others and you know um, marginalizing others by what they eat that you know the the murky sort of whatever what defines a subnature as subnatural? I mean, this is this is what interests me. This dynamic because it, it's so important. It's important to um, how we get on 
with the environment, with what we eat, and sustainability, but as far as also how we get on with other people. Um, so mm-hmm. it seems it seems important. Yeah, I'm not thinking back to what you were saying about um, Renee Redzepi using weeds and making them very delicious. Um, I was talking to this girl uh, I met the other day, and she was like, yeah, I know where to find mulberries and Ridgewood. And it's like this whole urban foraging phenomenon has become such like a badge of honor. And I just, I mean, the crunchy granola side of me is really into it, but also it, it's not really sustainable either. It's not like you're going to forego, you know, your pressed mulberry, your pressed juices for these wild mulberries or whatever. And so how do these seemingly at odd spheres coexist or is the awareness simply enough? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's a great question, but uh, the statute of foraging um, uh, changes um, you know, over time in, in different contexts. And you know, if you go back to um, again to, to the Greeks, and I'm sort of trying to trace this idea, um, at least in, in Western culture, I feel like that's um, it's such a vast topic, and and I feel like I'm you know, it's hard to grapple with the, the topic and you know, sort of every culture, and I'm just sort of starting where, starting small and working my way out. But I, but I am sort of tr- tracing foods from antiquity um, towards the, you know, uh, at least in, in ancient Greece, towards, um, you know, modernity. And foraging, as for Aristotle, was, you know, really the lowest of um, ways of, of procuring food because, <laughs> you know, whereas agriculture, you show that you're in control of nature and the environment. Foraging, you're just like, you know, nature's serving control of you. You have to, sure, you can, um, you can try to, you can try to find mushrooms and go to a space where you think they might grow, but, but, um, um, uh, but you're really, it's not like you have any, you know, um, um, agency, you know, other than, you know, that you can't, you're not growing the things yourself. So, you know, it was sort of like this, derisive concept back back at that point um, in, in antiquity because you weren't you weren't mastering nature and now you know you're right you know so all of a sudden foraging it's really hip um, and and I gotta admit I'm, I'm right there with you I mean I love foraging for mushrooms and you feel so great when you come back and you've got some mushrooms and some you know chanterelle or whatever and people are like oh you know where did you find those and you're like oh, I'm not gonna tell you you know that's a forager's <laughs> secret and people are like well how do you know they're not poisonous and you're like, well, you know, I think they're probably not. And then you like build up a little. You're like, I'm, I've, I've had the, you know, you know, this might be, you know, this one might be the jack o' lantern, which looks like the chanterelle. But I'm pretty sure it's the chanterelle. You will probably just be, will be fine. And so all of a sudden you're like, you're in a position of power. People are like, well, I don't know how much I should eat that. And you know, it's, mm-hmm. you've like, you know something about nature. So I think you feel like you're communing with nature in a way. Mm-hmm. But you, but there's also this, um, you feel courageous. It's like going going back to going to the foreign culture and, you know, um, you know, the streets of Mexico and, you know, down alleyways looking for the authentic, um, so to speak, Mexican food, you know, you've, you've gone there and you found it and, you know, now you're going, so you feel like you're, you feel adventurous and all that. So, um, but on the other hand, um, as you say, you know, now people are just, you know, they're destroying, uh, you know, uh, natural habitats and, you know, places where uh, foods have been, you know, bushes been cultivated or plants have been cultivated, you know, by f- over foraging them. It's almost like they're overfishing the oceans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my understanding is this is an even bigger problem in the UK than it is, than it is here in the United States. Um, I mean, it's the only other good thing you could say is that there is something to be said about knowing where foods come from and, uh, and understanding 
the process. It, it's it's different than buying things and you know buying those chanterelles in a and a grocery store where you know who knows what what sort of dark processes you know maybe mm. maybe maybe there weren't any dark processes but who knows how those mushrooms got there and you know who foraged them and you know how the labor was paid and that kind of thing so you know i guess there's something to be said by being more in touch with the natural environment mm. um yeah yeah it, it's like this reversal or this exhilarating reversal of the subject object relationship we have with food like you were saying like ooh, what the wild or the wilderness is going to dictate what we have for dinner but also isn't this kind of coming from a very romantic or privileged point of view right like not everyone can afford to just live on these wild um foraged chanterelles so yeah, yeah you know it is no truly but there's also um there's a part of um uh, uh, more european social history than american i guess that goes back to this idea of uh, of gleaning um which is you know when you pass through uh the fields after the harvest and um take the fruit that's been left on the vine or that's fallen off and um, gleaning has been legal in you know, France since you know the 15th or 16th century because it was a way of of assuring that people who um, who didn't have the means to you know buy food or um, you know have access to food could um, you know survive. And so even though um, gleaners didn't own land, they legally could go on the property and take food after after the harvest um and so you know there's uh, the, that's an interesting part of you think of it's a different sort of foraging i guess right but um you know it's it's more maybe a more of a positive way of thinking about it and a way of thinking about um how how something like that can exist in in society um so yeah mm -hmm. Well, I think um, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. My pleasure. Thank you.